This is Inside the Writer's Head with Danny McLean, the Library Foundation of Cincinnati and Hamilton Counties Writer in Residence for 2020. The Library Foundation's Writer in Residence program promotes writing, literacy, and creativity while furthering the library's mission of connecting people with the world of ideas and information. Welcome to Inside the Writer's Head. I'm your writer-in-residence for 2020. On this podcast, you can expect conversations with writers and other lovers of books, journalism, libraries, and the literary arts. Today, I'm excited to welcome Cincinnati native Gregory Cornblue, the owner of Northside's Downbound Books. A product of Sands Montessori and Walnut Hills High School, Cornblue got his start in book selling while doing graduate work in American Studies at University of Massachusetts, Boston. He went on to spend a decade in the sales and marketing department of Harvard University Press, a leading publisher of nonfiction in the humanities, social sciences, and sciences, where he worked closely with authors, booksellers, librarians, and media members to help new books and ideas find their audience. After 13 years on the East Coast, he returned home in November 2018 and opened Downbound's Doors late the following year. Welcome, Greg. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for having me, and uh, thanks for these um, great conversations that you've been having with folks. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so we're neighbors in Northside, and one mm-hmm. of my great joys in these pandemic times is wandering aimlessly around the neighborhood and finding myself in front of your bookstore, looking in the windows to see what you've selected, um, you know, as as kind of your picks, and it's something that is a nice distraction and just something I can always count on to hold my interest and and get me excited um, during my walks. And so Downbound is tucked away on a side street. It's really a neighborhood bookstore. How did you choose Northside as the the location? Uh, So, well, I was, um, I lived in Northside for the last couple of years um, before I left town. I left in uh, 2005. Um, But even before living here, it's pretty much the neighborhood that I spent most of my time in and uh it's just it really is a neighborhood and it's got character and it's got a lot of people that have been here for a long time and um so when I got back to town and started thinking um pretty seriously about uh giving a giving a bookstore a shot here Northside was pretty much the only um the only area that I had in mind and I was uh just very fortunate to um to find this spot it's actually my landlord is um Dave Cunningham, who um, owns the Comet, which is a um, long, long beloved Northside institution. And uh, one day um, I was driving past and he was just outside um, painting the facade. And I just stopped and uh, talked to him about it. And he had just done a ton of work on the space. And it was um, it was pretty close to what I had in mind. So I, I was glad to grab it. And um, you shared your press release with me that you, I guess, circulated to local media when you opened. And there's this line mm-hmm. that, that stood out to me, this quote. You said, I was very fortunate to travel widely for work. I think you're talking about your career in publishing. So you say, yeah. I was very fortunate to travel widely for work. And at every stop, I'd visit as many bookstores as I could. Over the years, the outlines of my dream bookstore became more and more clear. So what what was that vision that you held, um, you know, during all those trips as you were as you were dreaming this up, and and how have you been able to help bring that to fruition? Uh, well, so there's kind of two 
I guess there's two parts of it, right? There's like what the bookstore uh, might specialize in and, and the kinds of things they stock and the kinds of things they do in their community and, and what people come to them for. And, you know, the first part of that, the stocking is something that I can get a good sense of when I'm visiting a store, but their role in their community, you know, you don't, you, you don't get a good sense of that just popping in one day. But then like the, another part of it is just kind of the way a store feels inside, right? It's like their physical spaces and books are so many people have gotten so accustomed to buying books online, partly because they can be less expensive online, but partly also just because, you know, a book is, is uniform, right? Like it, the book is the same book, no matter where you right. buy it. And so, um, when you want to attract people to a space to come buy books that they're probably going to spend more money on than they would online. Um, a big part of that now for better or for worse is, is, you know, the actual space that you're trying to bring them to and the feel of it and the experience of being there. And so I knew that I wanted a space that just felt nice to be in. It was kind of, I don't know, serene maybe that could, could kind of like put you in, in a good space for thinking about books and for thinking about reading. But, um, that also managed to sort of cram a lot in and, and have a lot of options and a lot of stuff to show you, but without feeling cluttered. You know, there's a certain kind of bookstore that is just like wall-to-wall books and stacks everywhere. And those tend to be used bookstores. Um, but being in those spaces, for me, it's like, it can be very exciting and fun times around, but it can also just be, uh, I don't know, kind of anxiety producing and um, a little intimidating. So I knew that I wanted it to, to not feel like that in here. I wanted it to be sort of as, as open and calm as possible while still having um, as many books as I could fit in. So um, I, I, I hope that, that we managed to, to pull that off here. Yeah. I mean, it's such a beautiful space. It's, um, it's small, 500 square feet. And I know that you've built the shelving and furniture yourself. Do you want to talk mm-hmm. a bit about that process of, you know, using your own design and, and building skills to, I don't know, create exactly what you wanted and why that felt important? Uh, part of it was just that because I, I I felt so strongly about how I wanted it to feel and how I wanted to use the space, um, I just, for that, you know, that goal of cramming tons of books in, but without feeling cluttered, I just buying like ready-made fixtures, ready-made shelves, it was not going to use the space as efficiently as I needed to. Um, and so I was pretty sure that I wanted all custom stuff and I have a background in carpentry and woodworking. And, um, I just decided to, uh, to build it myself. Part of that was also like the, you know, I'd spent a lot of years working for other people and I'd just kind of been developing these visions of being in charge and getting to decide everything and do it all myself. And, um, it's, that's not necessarily the best way for a um, business owner to go about things, but, in the beginning, it was hard for me to let go of that idea of just kind of diving in and doing it. So um, I got the lease um, from Dave, I think it was like July 1st of um, 2019. And the building took um, quite a while, a lot longer than it would have taken if I had had uh, more experienced people do it for me. But um, it was fun. And uh, it let me really, while I was in the space, think a lot about how the space was going to be used by people who were in here um, shopping or here for, for events and things like that. So um, it was uh, probably October, I would say, before the bulk of the, the work was done. Um, so it took a while, but I was happy with how it turned out and uh, it was fun. Yeah, it's beautiful in there. 
Um, how'd you choose the name? Uh, so down, down, um, you know, I first actually was thinking about, um, opening a bookstore, um, in Boston, actually, um, when I was living there, uh, in a neighborhood called Jamaica Plain. And it was, I think it was around 2014 or 15. Um, and I just, whenever I would mention it to people, especially to the real estate agents, um, there was just a lot of skepticism and, and at that time and kind of still in some quarters, there's, um, this, you know, a thought that bookstores are just dying and that we're going to lose them all. And there was, that was around when eBooks were, were really on the ascendance. And there was this, um, kind of prevailing sense that, that that was that, you know, that curve was just going to keep going up. And, um, that really leveled off and bookstores have made a real resurgence, but there was in the beginning, just that sort of skepticism. I just kind of had this idea that like, you know, if, if books are, books are going down, I'm going to go down with them. I'm going to make them stand. Um, right. But then it's also just, you know, there, there ended up being a lot of resonance with um, down, down, like we, you know, books are bound, um, down, bound um, traffic on a river has the right of way. And Cincinnati is a river town. And the Amazon is a river. And um, it just, it, it's fun to say there were, there were a lot of reasons that it, that it, um, was something that kind of stuck with me for years. And then I ended up just, just going with it. So what changes have you had to make um, to your business given that we're living through this pandemic? Um, I have been excited to open my front door and find a delivery from you. I know that you've, um, you know, you kind of make your way through the neighborhood, maybe even the city making deliveries. How have you adapted your business to meet this moment that we're living through? Uh, yeah, it's been, it's been hard. It's just been kind of a constant evolution. I mean, in the beginning, um, when non-essential businesses had to close, um, you know, bookstores were not essential here, uh, but actually live above the store. And so I was able to be here as, um, as working from home basically. And so, um, you know, we had just launched a website in like February um, and then ended up becoming completely dependent on it uh, by the middle of March. Um, so I was able to, you know, take orders through the through the website, and then in the neighborhood, um, I was doing delivery. And um, yeah, I would go out uh, every day. I would make a run to the post office, and then I would just kind of go around in neighborhood, the, go around in Northside. And, and it's it's funny, Northside is like so um, densely populated that. I could do some days I would do dozens of deliveries and it would take me less than an hour because I would, you know, drive to some corner and, and park and then have like three or four houses with, with orders just on that block or on that street. And um, so the deliveries were a big part of what we we're doing. And then um, I think it was, I can't remember for sure. I think April, maybe May, we were allowed to start doing curbside pickup. Um, so we added that in and, um, continued shipping, continued doing delivery in the neighborhood. So part of it is like how we're getting the books to people. Um, but a big part of the change is just like, you know, all of those ideas and nice thoughts that I had about what the space feels like and what it looks like. And that's, you know, that's out the window when people aren't coming in the store, that no longer is what matters. And to a certain extent, the actual, um, you know, composition of the books that we stuck also matters a lot less because once you're on a website where, you know, it's people are not limited to buying just what I have in stock. You know, our website will say whether we have a book here or whether it's something that we'd have to order, but there's just kind of a different thing that happens when you're 
physically in a space looking at what's available versus when you're already shopping online and know that, you know, maybe it's going to be shipped to you. There's going to be some kind of delay to begin with. And then, um, so what people were buying definitely changed a lot. Um, and we were getting a lot more special orders than we had in the past. So it's suddenly like, you know, it's no longer thinking so much about what we have in the store to present to people, although that's still really important. And we try to present books in that same way on our website, but it's all, it's, and in some ways it's kind of like we are competing at that point with online sellers who have everything. And so one of the ways that we ha- I had to sort of adjust were, was to bring in certain things that seemed like people were interested in that weren't the kinds of things that we would normally stock. Um, kids workbooks were a big part of that. Some kinds of like self-care books, adult coloring books, um, and some bestsellers that we wouldn't normally stock. So trying to, bring in some of those things so that we had them on hand so that we could get them to people um, without them thinking that there would necessarily be a delay if we didn't have it. And then part of it was thinking just like, what is it that we can offer and how can we compete if we know that, you know, we're all just selling online at that point and we can't compete on price or selection necessarily. So um, part of that was just like, you know, we're going to be high touch and personal and relationship based and, fast. So I just, you know, we were small enough so that we were able to personally respond to every order that, that would come through and, um, you know, let people know if we didn't have the book, how long we expected it to take so that um, folks weren't left wondering, you know, what happened with their order, especially during um, periods of this pandemic when um, a lot of books have been hard to get. Um, that's um, was especially the case when there was um, a real spike in interest in books on race and policing and justice and anti-racism. A lot of those books were just not available for quite a while. And um, bookstores all over the country, um, you kind of hear booksellers in back channels talking about how, um, you know, people ordered the books and then got really um, frustrated and in some cases um, just really lashed out at the books, booksellers and bookstores that weren't able to get some the books immediately through no fault of their own. And I was just really pleased through this whole um, pandemic basically that we haven't, we haven't dealt with any of that. And I think a big part of that is just that we're small enough that we're able to personally respond to orders and make sure that people um, know it's been received and, and keep them posted on how long it's going to take. So just kind of making sure that, that we can, you know, be, as responsive and as sort of personally involved as we can with all the orders has been a, a big part of the way things have shifted here. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of just a whole, a whole different game. There were lots of long, long days where I was here just by myself and um, was really grateful to be really busy with lots of orders from people all over the city um, and especially here at Northside. Um, but it's just different when you're like staring at a screen all day and processing right. these orders and then packing them up and, running out on deliveries or running to the post office. So it was like, you know, it's still selling books, but it's not, it's not being a bookseller in the way that I wanted to be a bookseller. Hmm. And, and that's, so what's missing is just that interaction, like people kind of coming in, knowing what they like, but also wanting your recommendations. Yeah. And seeing like, it's just great to see people, encounter new books, you know, or to see that spark of excitement when they pick something up that they had never heard of or that they were super excited about um, or that they were, um, you know, not expecting to be able to find in a space this small. And then um, just all of those things, those are what, those are the sustaining encounters and those are what you do it for. And then talking to people about books and 
being able to recommend things. And, you know, we have this great um, little kids nook in here um, where people, families can sit and read through books. And it's always great to be able to watch the kids find new books and families discover new ones. And all, all of that stuff is just, you know, we're not, we don't have that right now. Um, and that's, that's, those are some of the great things about um, being a bookstore and being booksellers. So yeah, it's, um, it's sad, but um, you know, we're, I have, I have food. I'm not, I'm not sick. So I try to, right. you know, everybody we've been able to, you know, I've been able to pay our staff through this. So I, you know, every day I do try to remember that like, this is not what I envisioned for book selling, but like, you know, I'm fine. And um, mm-hmm. there's a lot of really difficult stuff happening in uh, in the country, in the world right now. So it's uh, kind of every day, just, you know, kind of my head will be down maybe that I'm just doing web orders, but then I can remember that, you know, we're, we're okay. Relatively, we're fine. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned um, all the, you know, Ibram Kendi and hmm. I don't even know, like maybe a renewed interest in Ta-Nehisi Coates, I, these kind of, yeah. you know, these big books and, and these anti-racist book lists that were, you know, going all over the internet um, during yeah. the summer of uprisings and reckonings around racism and white supremacy. I, what I'm, I just love your take on that. Like, there's been some conversation about the utility of these lists and whether people buy the books just to put them on their bookshelves and you know look like they care about certain issues. I wouldn't expect you to, you know, know to have an opinion about whether or not people do that. But, but what? What do you make of these kind of anti-racist book lists and more broadly of the role that books can play in a moment like this when we are grappling with so many big issues about what our society should look like? Uh, I think that books can be a really big part of it. Um, I think that books are important. Um, I think for a lot of people that sort of were new to thinking about um, uh, white supremacy and its role in our society or police brutality or policing in general. I think that books can be a great way for them to sort of quickly, um, uh, you know, dip into what people are thinking and saying and, and about these things. But, um, and then, you know, so not relying so much on other people to educate them. It's a way for people to dive in on their own. But I do think that it's definitely, you know, like a step and a part and a, and a first way in. And so, um, one of the things that that I think booksellers can do um, is make sure that people know that there are long sort of um, histories of thinking and writing about these things and lots of books in conversation with each other. And so, um, you know, there were, there were a handful of books that, you know, I think there were maybe four or five books that were like the books that, that were on all the lists and that everyone wanted. And those books were great. You know, Ibram Kendi's book and, um, uh, um, you know, the white supremacy, me and white supremacy, that the handbook there and Tanasi Coates's memoir was one of them that was uh, a lot of people were after and Robin D'Angelo's white fragility. Um, and all of those books were sort of in conversation and in dialogue with other ideas and other books. And some of them were just not the ones that made those lists or some of them might've been, um, more academic and, um, maybe not the best intros, but there's like a broad, swath of of literature on these things and so what booksellers um could do and have been doing is just making sure people know that there um are that you know these are wide wide conversations and there are lots of resources out there um but i think that booksellers have been pretty good at recognizing that like you know 
for folks getting the book, that's not like the end, right? So I think booksellers, or at least we have tried to be pretty careful and and not acting as if these books that that became so popular and so in demand were in themselves like the ends, right? Or that you've done the work because you bought the book. Um, right. uh, so it's yeah, it's it's you know we're it's it's kind of a line between wanting to make sure that people have access to what they're looking for and and thinking that. Um, that it's really important to have those books, but then sort of not being, you certainly don't want to be just pedantic with folks about, you know, there being other books to go to next, but we're always happy to recommend more when people are, are ready to go on from those initial ones. Right. Okay. I have this question that I've wanting, I've been wanting to ask you for a while. Um, and it kind of requires that you dig back into your experiences working in publishing um, but okay. first, I'm going to read. I'm going to read you this quote, and it's this is from a conversation. So I, I really like the long form podcast. And mm-hmm. late late last year, Max Linsky had um, Parul Segal, the New York Times mm-hmm. book critic, mm-hmm. on the yeah. show, and he said this to her. Um, he said, um, "The stakes with books feel so high to the writers and so low to the publisher, and that gap feels perilous. The model of the book industry is place a hundred bets." to pay off for the other 98. And from a writer's standpoint, it's like, well, I just bet four years of my life. That gap has always felt tricky to me and kind of weirdly unspoken. And that quote really spoke to me because as someone who, you know, I wrote a book, it came out last year. I never, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like you win the lottery by having someone buy your proposal, but the process is so opaque. Um, And so I was just wondering if you'd share like, I, and I actually don't know if it's the same in academic publishing as it is, as it is in commercial publishing, if, if it's like that same model. But I wonder, you know, you worked in marketing. And so I'm just curious, how do publishing houses decide how to place those bets? Like, um, or more specifically, like how much to get behind a particular book or author, how much to throw toward a book tour? When you were doing publicity and marketing, what kind of calculations were made around who, who, like how to decide who to really promote and get behind? Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's always a lot that goes into it. Definitely with an academic press. Um, I mean, Harvard, um, Harvard University Press was, is one of a handful that are university presses, but are sort of, um, you know, they compete with trade houses for certain books and then also do just really, you know, hardcore scholarly monograph stuff that is only meant for people in that field. Um, so there is, there's definitely um, with a nonprofit, with a university press, there is a different sort of approach to those things than with um, a trade house. So a trade house is not going to publish many things that they go into um, not expecting or hoping at least to make some money on. Whereas like a, an academic press, um, and that's kind of why they're there. We, you know, we published all kinds of things that we knew we weren't going to make money on because that was not um, what uh, the mission was for that for that press. But um, we did have books that we paid advances for, and that definitely becomes a factor in how you position the book, right? If you know that you have um, a certain amount of money tied up in something and that you want for it to earn out, that's going to affect the way that you um, the way that you push push the book and. So choices that are made, I mean, it can be hard um, to know. And one of the fun things about publishing is that we used to always sort of use this metaphor that like 
it's not it's not widgets, right? It's they're they're different, but you also when you sign a contract for a book, you don't you don't know how it's going to turn out necessarily. You know, most of the time, right. sometimes there were trade books that would come to us as a full manuscript, but for the most part, you're buying from a proposal or signing a contract from a proposal. And so we would always think of it as more like wine. Like it takes a while, mm-hmm. and some years the wine is going to be like great, and some years it just doesn't doesn't turn out. And so there would definitely be books that we would be very excited about, maybe pay a bunch of money for, and then they don't maybe come together in quite the right way. And so that you definitely then as a publishing house, you know, when you're going out, um, hanging your hat on a book, you want to be able to stand behind it. And so if something that we expected to be great and a big deal just kind of doesn't reach that bar, then you sometimes kind of have to pull back um, a little bit on what you're doing with it. But then that can, of course, um, negatively impact your relationship with with that author and no author is in a bubble. So they'll talk to each each other and those experiences will get out there. Um, for trade house, definitely though, it's been, you know, there are ways in which it's, it's sort of followed the, um, the trajectory of like what people say about movie studios, right. Is that like, you know, they make the big blockbuster tent films and that's what they try to make all of their money on and smaller films, maybe fall by the wayside or just don't get made. And so in trade publishing, there's what's called like the mid list, which are books that will just be, you know, not given that huge push. And um, they often will be kind of neglected. And and the hard thing about books is that it just doesn't stop, right? It's a, it's a fire hose and they're just constantly right. coming. As a bookseller, they're constantly coming at you. As a publisher, you're constantly putting them out. And so the ones that have legs, you'll stick with them and, you know, go as long as you can. But the ones that don't, um, publishers are going to, they're going to move on pretty quickly often. And, um, you know, it's, you don't throw good money after bad. Like if there's a book that you think is great and it just hasn't struck and it didn't get reviews or, or the attention or the, the, the pickups, like sometimes there's just not a lot you can do about that. Um, but you'll see, like, it's definitely become much more common for trade houses to like add, um, like when they'll release a book in hardcover and then when it comes out in paperback, it'll often have a new cover now. And sometimes even like mm-hmm. if it's nonfiction, sometimes they'll even change the title. And so you do see them trying to get a second life out of books that maybe didn't hit the way um, that they hoped or that they had a lot invested in and hadn't recouped. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's just constant calculation and thinking about what you have and what you have invested in it and how you can, for a trade house, it's, it's how you can make money off of it. And for a, um, more mission-based scholarly publisher. It's going to be like, how do we make sure that the, um, you know, the conversations and the the discourse that we think that a particular book can have an impact on, how do we make sure that it finds the right people to be able to have that impact? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that. I remember sitting in a, <laughs> sitting in a meeting at Hachette, so like big New York publishing, um, mm company and I was sitting there with my agent and I don't know my editor and the market like a couple of people from the marketing team and I just had no idea I, this must have been pretty early in the process but I just did not really understand what was going on you know it was like I was just like I'm I just have to write this book I, I'm not yeah. but I didn't have the understanding of like so how it fit in some larger ecosystem you know and I remember uh-huh. asking them like what what is success like how do you guys I think I, I think what I said was how do you all define success and they yeah. basically just kind of like laughed at me. They kind of like politely, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> hid their faces as they chuckled at my naivete. But um, 
Yeah. So when, when Max Linsky just, you know, kind of acknowledged that to, to a Times book critic, I just appreciated him making visible what I think a lot of first time authors live with, which is just a ton of uncertainty and a lack of clarity around how publishing works. So, yeah. Um, so one right on it. Yeah. One of the other things that was really great about working at um, a nonprofit and an academic press is that when you go into it, knowing that the book is not going to make money, you can think of it in terms of your list. Right. And it's like, what is the contribution that this book is going to make to these, this field where we have a lot of strong books and they are in conversation with each other. And maybe they are just for the scholars, but when we go to, you know, the conference um, for that, for that field and have our book exhibit there, we're going to have a great presentation and that's going to help us attract, you know, the next important books in that field. Um, so those kinds of things were, were great to be able to, to rely on and to sort of, um, you know, it helped you be a little less cynical, I guess, when you're in that kind of publishing. I remember there was this conference for years called Digital Book World that was basically just supposed to scare publisher, publishers into, you know, paying for consultants that were going to help them figure out how to do online marketing and ebooks and things. But I remember going once um, and it, there weren't a lot of academic publishers there. And there was um, a presentation from Harlequin, um, the romance novel publishers. Um, and there was a um, presentation and they talked about the marketing campaigns they do online and how they were basically like to the minute, like they would launch a campaign and if they didn't get the response they were looking for in the first 10 or 15 minutes, they would pull it. And oh, wow. that like gave me a panic attack. Like I, I had never had to be part of that world and it was, um, a relief <laughs> not to be in that world. Yeah. Yeah. That's a level of pressure that, yeah, that I luckily not had to face. <laughs> so, <laughs> So you were on the on the East Coast for over a decade working in the world of books. And I'm curious what you're noticing about Cincinnati's literary community. Like, what are some of the hidden gems or the highlights of what we have going on here? Or what do we need more of? Uh, you know, definitely the, the Mercantile Library is a, just a total gem. And we're very lucky to have it. The programming that they do is, is just incredible. And um, they bring in just the best um, writers and speakers and every year their, their um, lineup is, is just super impressive. So we're lucky to have them. They do an amazing job. Um, we have a lot of writers in this town that, you know, maybe um, most of the people in town aren't aware of. I mean, um, there's a really, really strong fiction writing program that you see um, that is, the, its profile has been uh, growing higher and higher. And a, a lot of the faculty members for that program actually live in, in Northside. Um, and I think there's a lot going on. You know, we've got strong book selling. Joseph Beth is, is wonderful. Blue Manatee is great. Um, we've got these um, really, I think, pillars. And then um, people read a bunch here, I think. One of the things that I've had to sort of get a handle on is what people respond to here, though, about, about new books. Like, what are the triggers that are going to make them buy a book? Because in in Boston and New York and certain places where there is um, a book buying public that maybe is sort of tracking the book industry in a different way, maybe because they're directly involved in it or maybe um, just because of the, their interest. You know, release day is a really big thing and people know that new books come on Tuesdays and they'll be waiting for a particular book. Or you could also like rely on certain triggers like an author being on fresh air, being on the cover of the New York Times book review, um, right. being reviewed in the Wall Street Journal, all of those things you just kind of knew, like, all right, this happens, 
this bookstore is going to probably sell X number of copies. And those particular triggers have not, I've found that at least here, I mean, we're still getting off the ground and we're just a tiny little corner, but those triggers have not necessarily played out um, the same way here. So one of the things I've been trying to get a sense of is, is what other um, sort of um, events or coverage is it that really leads people to become aware of a new book um, in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. Um, what are you reading? Um, always reading several things. Um, right now, though, I'm actually reading um, a new, um, just came out last week, uh, it's sort of a um, gentrification thriller from Alyssa Cole. Um, and she is a uh, romance novelist, but this one is called When No One Is Watching, and it's about um, a neighborhood in Brooklyn. Um, just quickly having its character change and um, it's very good. Um, enjoying it, enjoying it a lot. I try to read ahead and, you know, be able to read things before they come out, but um, publishers have really cut back on the print galleys that they're producing um, at least during the pandemic. And um, we also, you know, we're not on the top of any publisher's list to, to send us some, some galley for some forthcoming book. Um, so a lot of those are available for, you know, our staff here to read and advance um, in um, digital copies, but our job now is just staring at a screen all day. And so it's really hard to, um, to then read on a screen also. So it's, that's been one of the changes recently is it's been harder to, to read things before they come out just because of the access we have to them. So there's a lot of times quickly reading or, or um, savoring things, but, but not until they're already available. Mm-hmm. Um, so how can people follow what's going on at Downbound? Uh, we try to stay pretty active on social media. So we're just Downbound Books on, um, Instagram and Facebook. Um, you know, our website, we do really try to, to recreate that experience of being in the store on the website. So we do have lists there of what you would see on our front table if we were open to the public and then sort of some other curated collections of, of books that fit well together that we would have maybe thrown displays up together in the store. So that's a good way for people to um, to see what's in the store. We have a newsletter they could subscribe to or um, like you, they could uh, wander by and, and look in the window, see what we've got. Yeah. Yeah. And I highly recommend following Downbound on Instagram. I love um, just seeing well, first of all, your posts are kind of like poetic and funny and like often read like little haikus or something. So I appreciate that. Um, Thank you. <laughs> and, and the photos are fun. So what's your handle on Instagram? Uh, at Downbound Books. Yeah. Okay. Um, and yeah, I mean, we just, it's it's been just seeing the way people respond to those posts also is interesting. Sometimes I feel like we are not focusing on individual books so much with social media, but I think social media just doesn't really lend itself to that so well. So we'll tend to have pictures of like a stack of books or just showing people the space that, you know, that, that they don't have access to at the moment. Um, and I've been kind of, um, I'm not ashamed to admit, I've been kind of trained by seeing what people respond to on social media. And so, um, yeah, people like to see the space. So we show the space. Yeah, that's a good point. I think I always I miss being able to go in there. You know, my daughter and I go in and sit in that little children's book nook that you have, and yeah. I miss that experience. And so that's also why I love following you on IG. It like makes me feel 
reconnected to the space in a way that I appreciate. We are um, eventually going to be um, uh, taking appointments for people to come in the store. One of the reasons we haven't reopened is just um, with childcare stuff for our staff. It's hard to be able to have people here to um, work with customers in the store while we're also dealing with all the web orders and other behind the scenes stuff. Mm -hmm. So we are working towards being able to add um, shopping in store by appointment. So um, before too much longer, hopefully in October, people will um, will be able to get back into the space again. Mm -hmm. That's great. I mean, I'm also, I think you've done at least a couple of socially distanced socially distanced events um, over the summer, like kids, storytelling for kids and that kind of thing. Any yeah. plans for more of that while the weather is um, still not too bad? Uh, so we did one outside story time and we've done a couple of um, uh, kind of pop-ups in the, the little driveway behind the store. And I think we're going to keep doing those um, so people can come sort of, you know, safely outside, do some shopping. Um, and then we may try to do some more of the story times. It's, um, you know, it's, we just go into it just being so cautious and wanting to just make sure that, you know, we don't have too many people come and that people can be there safely, but also like, you know, a picture book, you're meant to be able to see the pictures right. and be up close. And so it's, it's a little tricky, um, to have those come off in a way that can be, enjoyable and sort of worth all the, all the stress and anxiety of putting them together. But if we can figure out a way to do them like safely and make sure it's fun for people, then, then definitely we'll, um, we'll be happy to do some more. Great. Greg, thank you for making time to talk with me and um, also just for everything that you bring to the neighborhood. It's been wonderful having downbound here as a resource. We love it. So thank you. Well, great. We're very happy to be here, and I was glad to be able to talk to you today, Danny. Thank you. Sure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Writer's Head. Keep joining us for in-depth conversations with writers and other lovers of books, journalism, libraries, and the literary arts. Thanks for listening. Special thanks to the Library Foundation for funding the Writer-in-Residence program. You can meet Danny at various events throughout the year. Learn more by visiting cincinnatilibrary.org slash writer-in-residence. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss future episodes. And leave us a review. It helps other book lovers find us. Thank you. Thank you.